Welcome back to the Fitness Simplified Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Schlag. I could not be more excited about today's episode. I have joining me Dr. Heather Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch is a menopause specialist. She works at the Menopause and Midlife Clinic at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Hirsch is here to talk to us all about our treatment options during menopause. The symptoms of menopause and perimenopause can be so intense, and yet the fear around the treatment can be just as intense. How did this fear come about? Is it something that is realistic? Do we need to be afraid of certain treatments? What are our treatment options? How to prepare for an appointment with your provider? These are some of the things that Dr. Hirsch and I cover today. I hope that this helps you to make the best decisions for your health care. Look, I am not a menopause specialist in any way. I am a woman who has been struggling with menopause symptoms, who was in the dark about those symptoms and didn't know where to get credible information. And so I'm passionate about helping you to connect with people who are experts. Let's go. Dr. Hirsch, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to have you and your dog here with us today. <laughs> yes, yes. Hopefully she will stay quiet for the duration of this episode. We'll see. Maybe, maybe she'll make a special guest appearance. Right. So, Dr. Hirsch, in, in reading about you, one thing I notice you say a lot is that your mission is to expose the gaps in women's health care. I would love to start by having you talk to us a little bit about that. What gaps have you seen and how do you think we should go about closing them? Yes. So I will start with telling you then a, a, a little bit of the story of how this came to me. So after I completed my internal medicine residency, I was looking for a, a fellowship in women's health and I found this this fellowship at Cleveland Clinic. So it's a two-year fellowship where we do extra training after our internal medicine residency on uh, women's health issues. And I was very interested in, in contraception and uh, um, fertility or infertility and polycystic ovarian syndrome from the perspective of an internist, not necessarily um, an OBGYN. And, and while I was there, I did many of my rotations with my um, mentor, her name's Dr. Thacker, she works at Cleveland Clinic, and she specializes in menopause. And people came from all across the country, like everywhere. They would like drive from Tennessee and Florida and even New York City, like big cities, I thought, you know, to come to Cleveland for <laughs> help with menopause. And it was everything from, you know, I think I have a, a rare neurologic condition. Um, my doctors won't prescribe HRT. Um, my doctor's taking it away from me. You know, what is going on with me? And I, 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 I had my aha moment. Like, this is the area that there is just no man's land. There's just not enough physicians who specialize in midlife and menopause and it was midlife because there's so many other concerns that women experience, you know, ranging from weight gain and hair loss and vertigo and headaches and migraines and abnormal bleeding. So along in that menopause transition, there's so 
many, like too many to list myths. Oh, there she is. Myths <laughs> about um, HRT, myths about menopause that I, I just, I felt like I couldn't not stay in this sphere because I just think it is the biggest area where, where women don't have answers. And then there's just a lack of clear and concise and consistent messaging about what, you know, what are the options? What are the major symptoms for women in midlife and menopause? So that's why I really got interested in it. And it is to me the biggest gap we have in women's health because you know, I think we have learned how to teach women about puberty and we've learned about pregnancy. We've learned how to teach and, and teach each other about pregnancy. And there's a lot of information now about postpartum course. So postpartum anxiety and depression uh, and the fourth trimester. And then as, after that, it's just kind of poof. No yeah. man's Silence. So what, radio silence. Radio, so why do you think that is? Do you have any insight that you've gained about why that is? Why are people not talking about it? Why are you saying there's you know, not as many physicians who specialize in that? Why do you think that is? So I think that there's a couple different reasons why. So the first is that physicians and um, ancillary staff, so nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, all people who see patients, don't get really any education around midlife and menopause. So that's sort of the first like obvious gap in care. So from the institutions I've worked at, I've been really integral in helping to teach um, young doctors who are in training about menopause and midlife. And sometimes they'll rotate with me and they'll just say like, their eyes are wide open. They're like, oh, I've never seen someone prescribe hormone replacement. And that's in and of itself is the big issue. So women, a common theme is, is that women feel so dismissed when they go to the doctor and ask about these symptoms or ask about treatment and the doctors just give them a plethora of really dismissive responses anywhere from, oh, you know, I suffered too, or it won't be too long, or there's really nothing you can do. And, and all of these are really incorrect, but it stems from not having a good education um, in their training. And not only among internists, but also among OBGYN doctors. So those doctors who we think would be the most knowledgeable about women's health issues, also fare kind of 50-50 on their knowledge, um, experience with treating and, and con basically consulting and having a discussion about menopause. So there's a lack of training. Um, and then there's also a lack of time. So it's a lengthy, it's a really lengthy discussion. And one obvious thing about me is I love to talk and sit and talk. And it, that's really, I think, what it takes is it's, it's a lengthy discussion because it's not such, so straightforward as, gee, my blood pressure is elevated. Okay, we need to bring it down. Mm -hmm. It's really more, what are the symptoms? How much do they affect your quality of life? What's your top symptom? You know, sometimes it can range from sexual health and libido to um, hot flashing at, at night and not sleeping to, you know, anxiety-ridden weight gain, mid-abdominal weight gain. And it's really, there's not just one right answer, kind of like, all right, we treat that blood pressure with our blood pressure medication. There's mm -hmm. so many different ways and people have so many different backgrounds. So it takes a lot of time. 
And then thirdly, I think there's a social aspect of women's health that is influenced by the greater society at large. So, you know, a great example of this is when the women's health study came out. This was in the early 2000s. And so this would be something that women listening to this podcast may remember if they were going through menopause, say, about 15 years ago. Um, And if you're really young, you won't remember, but it's important historically in women's health to know in the early 2000s is when the women's health study came out saying that hormone therapy is dangerous. And this idea has been really persisted, I think, perpetuated by the media that estrogen is dangerous and harmful. And I always say to my trainees and patients and friends, you know, that there's so much fear and guilt instilled in women around any reproductive choice that we make, whether it's fear in things we eat while we're pregnant or, or fear in things we eat while we're trying to get pregnant or fear in how we treat ourselves at the end of our reproductive course. Mm. And I think that's sort of a societal driven, you know, underlying big issue, which is, 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 is vast and hard for just one person to tackle. But those are kind of my reasons why I think, um, or I began to think that these gaps in midlife specifically exist. And it seems like your approach to starting to close these gaps is to first expose them, which is what you're doing a lot on your platform online. Um, what else do you think is gonna, it's gonna take to begin to close these gaps? So I think that this is going to be, this is not going to be easy. Like most things women have, most things that women have to fight for are not easy. But I think that women themselves, I'm starting to see women themselves really demanding more. Like they want, instead of maybe how it was 20 or 30 years ago when I I wasn't around and treating patients at that time, but women are really starting to be more proactive. They're really starting to be more open and discussing their own stories and their own struggles. So I think when women start to talk and we do things like this, like your podcast, and we start to talk and spread the word, we're starting to demand more. So if women start to demand more from their physicians and say, this is unacceptable that you don't have a re- an answer for me, then physicians themselves might start to say, we need more education and start to actually ask for more education. So I think that women not need to start demanding more, even though I wish it could come from the other end. You know, mm-hmm. we, and I'm working on that. I'm working on really training those young physicians, but there's only one of me, but yeah. there's millions of midlife women. And I think um, there is a good, you know, amount of women who are really, really kind of starting to, 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 to say, no, no, this, that can't be the answer. I don't feel like myself anymore. There has to be something else. And I think I'm starting to see almost like, I hate to use the word grassroots because, but I'm starting to see this where in, in some of these platforms that we're on, women are starting to demand more and that is awesome. So we're starting to talk about it. We're starting to demand more we're staying really kind of socially active and socially aware. Mm-hmm. And I think those things are going to help to start the steps will help to start these, these get close, closing these gaps. 
I think that's important for the women listening this to hear that this change, that they can affect this change by demanding more. And I think for us to be able to do that, we personally need more education. We, you know, we're kind of in the dark a lot about what is happening to us. And so let's talk more about um, perimenopause and menopause today so that women have a place to come from when they go to their provider. I know I had an experience last spring when I went to see my provider about getting hormone replacement therapy, about doing something to relieve the very severe symptoms I was having. And had I gone into that appointment unprepared, it would not have ended in my favor. As it was, um, I left shaking, I was crying, I had to really push hard to get appropriate treatment. And I was only able to do that because before I went in, I had armed myself with a lot of knowledge. Yeah. And I wish that that's not how it was. I wish I could have just shown up and, you know, gotten the help that I needed, but that's where we are. And so let's talk about it. Um, for women who are just maybe not even to the age where they have begun menopause, well, why don't we start that? Why don't we start with the timeline? When can women expect to start noticing symptoms of perimenopause? Great question. So perimenopause is defined as the time leading up to menopause. And I always say, you know, by the textbook, which most women do not follow the textbook, mm -hmm. but by the textbook, menopause is one year of no periods. Now, perimenopause can last anywhere from one to 10 years where you're starting the decline in your body's natural production of estrogen and you can develop symptoms. And those symptoms can be really wide range. They can be anywhere from you know, your typical, which would be hot flashes and night sweats or night awakenings. But one of the things I hear so often is that women feel um, different. They feel some new symptom that really can't be explained by anything else. And it, to me, it's no coincidence that as you're losing a major hormone, you might develop some atypical symptoms that don't follow the textbook. Mm -hmm. For example, severe anxiety or insomnia that's kind of really out of your baseline. For example, you may have some borderline anxiety, but now it is just really out of control. Hair loss is really common. Women who will be having, you know, some irregular periods, which is sort of a sign of perimenopause, will just come to me in the office with just their hair and their hands just sobbing. And it, 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 is, it is so distressing. Um, dizziness, which is a feeling of um, when you stand up or move your head from side to side, you feel really dizzy. That's called vertigo, is really common. Sorry about that little dog there. Okay. Um, other symptoms can be um, irregular periods, change in libido, um, again, major mood disturbances, and maybe not anxiety, but irritability or anger. I will have my patients come in with their partner, and they're like, my partner, I am like crazy. And, you know, here she's in the corner going like, yeah, it's really bad. Um, <laughs> and, you know, these are real physiologic things. And I think that, again, historically, women have been made out to feel like they're being histrionic or they're being dramatic. And, you know, I think that's such garbage. I think that there's definitely something, you know, going on. Women are intuitive. They know their bodies really well. And when all of a sudden something changes in that period of perimenopause where your periods start to become a little bit more irregular, 
you know, that's when it can start. And then menopause is that one year of no periods. But what is a big misconception is that menopausal symptoms can last on average five to seven years. And we know that actually, if you do experience these in perimenopause, you actually are probably going to have symptoms that last longer. So knowing that and if, if you know, and seeking treatment sooner, demanding that someone listen to you, um, and, and help you and go over viable treatment options for you is so important. And your story breaks my heart, but it reminds me and it points exactly to why in my story and my training, I realized I could not stand back and just, mm-hmm. you know, know this. Once that lens is put on, you can't not see it and not make this my career mission. So if I am understanding what you just said correctly, did you say that women who have experienced more severe symptoms in perimenopause are more likely to have symptoms that last longer once they've hit menopause? Did I understand that? You said it perfectly. So if perimenopause can last up to a decade, yeah, and then postmenopause, your symptoms could linger on, you said longer than five to seven years? Yeah. So (laughs) that's like 17 years. Yes. Yes, it is. That is a massive chunk of a woman's life. Exactly. And it breaks my heart to know that so many women have not been treated. And there is this notion that, yeah, you know, you just, you get into midlife and you're just supposed to sort of feel miserable and sweat and not sleep anymore and, and weak urine. Like these are all such ingrained things. And, and again, none of that is true. Um, and that's that societal force. That's sort of that societal message that um, is 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 really incorrect. And that's sort of this interesting intersection between medicine and sociology. But you're absolutely right. And to make this point even a little bit more to hit home, about 10% of women will have symptoms until their last day. And so that means they'll have symptoms and hot flashes, you know, forever. It's not uncommon for me every couple of months to meet a 75-year-old who has never been treated, who wow. ultimately finds me by some, some, someone who says, you know, you should go see Dr. Hirsch. And she'll say, yeah, I've been hot flashing for 25 years. I mean, I've just been living with this. Wow. Um, and it's, it's heartbreaking. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. So help women understand a little bit more what is happening to their bodies as perimenopause starts. What is actually happening? Yeah. So your ovaries make all of the estrogen in your body and your ovaries are connected. You know, we all kind of know where they are, but they're in that lower, you know, abdomen, they're connected to your uterus. As you go through perimenopause is when your ovaries are starting to uh, for lack of better words, I always say go to sleep. <laughs> um, so menopause, when, when you hit menopause, your body doesn't make any estrogen anymore and it never will. And, you know, I always kind of thought to myself in the cave days, like we usually died at childbirth or kind of way before menopause. So, you know, in my, in my own little brain, I think that we're kind of meant to have estrogen around for our whole lives, but we have outlived those days. So menopause is when your body stops making estrogen. And perimenopause is the time when that estrogen level is slowly starting to kind of flicker out. Um, And so that's why during perimenopause, I always say perimenopause is 
sometimes harder to treat than menopause because I'm, we're still kind of working against your own body, which is doing an unpredictable thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and menopause is a little bit, is, is in all intents and purposes predictable. You don't make any estrogen. And if you need some for support, if you need hormone replacement, we give you a tiny bit back. Um, so that's what's really happening in perimenopause. And then once you hit menopause, you're really always postmenopausal because your ovaries are not coming back. So one way to also make this make sense is if you have a male partner, um, I'll say your male partner is making more estrogen than you do right now. And they're like, oh, um, because men make some estrogen, definitely, you know, not as much as women do, and they have way more testosterone than women do. Women also make testosterone, but you know, postmenopause or at postmenopause, um, women don't make any estrogen anymore. Where men are still making estrogen, so sometimes that that makes women sort of say like, Gee, "This is ridiculous." Um, and so that's kind of a way I can also put it to make it make a little bit more sense. Got it. Now, as far as treatment options. Um, Let's talk a little bit. You you started a bit earlier talking about the Women's Health Initiative, um, and I know a lot of fear has come from that, specifically about cancer. What can you tell people about um, that study and the results and where we're at now? Yeah, so this is, um, I'm going to do the Cliff Notes version. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> the Cliff Notes version is that the Women's Health Study was a really big, well-designed study, um, but it had some um, drawbacks. The first is that the majority of the women in the study were on average 64 years of age. Mm -hmm. So in reality, they were hoping to get younger women, but as we all know, women in their late 40s or early 50s, which is the natural time of menopause, are probably the busiest they've been in their entire lives. They're taking care of children, parents, they're at the peak of their careers, they're running their houses, and and they didn't have this time to enroll in this study. So the applicability of the study meant that they were looking at women who are much farther away from menopause and putting them on hormones when really in clinically what happens sort of in real life is women seek out treatment much closer to their last period. Mm -hmm. So when the results came out, they clumped a huge group of women together from 50 to 79. And then years later in 2007, in 2013, and then again in 2017, they divided the women amongst years since menopause. And what has, has really been shown over and over and over again, is something that we call the timing hypothesis, that if you take hormone replacement within 10 years of menopause, the benefits actually vastly outweigh the risks. Um, Now, the Women's Health Study only used one option. It's a medication called, the brand name is Prempro, and what this is is a combination of conjugated equine estrogen and medoxyprogesterone acetate, which is just... um, that Premarin is the estrogen that comes from um, horses' urine, and medoxyprogesterone acetate is the progesterone component that comes um, from a man-made progestin. So they only looked at this one combination of oral, this one dose. So first, I want to alleviate the fears about risks for cardiovascular disease or stroke, because the younger you take it, if you take it within 10 years of menopause, 
this is actually cardioprotective. So actually reduced heart disease in women, which is the number one cause of death in women. Yeah. And it reduced all-cause mortality, meaning those women lived longer. And actually, again, like in the 2017 data, these women are outliving the women who took placebo. All right. Now to the cancer question. Um, the study stopped because of an inherent increased risk of breast cancer only in the women who took the estrogen plus the progesterone combination. So I want to tell you something fascinating is that the women who took the estrogen only, you can only do that if you've had a hysterectomy. The main reason to take progesterone is to protect an intact uterus. So if you don't have any uterus anymore, you won't get uterine cancer, so you can just take estrogen. Those women had statistically significant, which is a big deal, reductions in breast cancer. So I'll say that again. The women who took the estrogen only actually had reductions in breast cancer compared to the women who took placebo. The increased incidence was very slight, and it was in the estrogen plus progesterone combination. Now, the media presented this in the newspapers and, you know, all of the star and in touch, which didn't exist back then, but the equivalents, you mm -hmm. know, there's a 24% increased risk of breast cancer, which when you read that as a layperson, even as a physician, you're like, geez. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, it's, it's, um, it's, it's it only makes sense statistically or in epidemiology terms when you think about actually the relative risk. So I'm going to make a big leap, but what the data really showed is that one, there was an increase about two to four women in a thousand over five years who took Prempro who got breast cancer, which is actually much less than women who are overweight, obese, or who drink alcohol on a consistent basis. But that's that part of that social, that, that media, that political aspect mm -hmm. of it that makes women feel very fearful. And they really like to make women feel fearful. Yeah. Um, it's not a 0% risk uh, in a sense, but um, it's a complex and complicated answer. And since the Women's Health Study, we've looked at several different preparations. So you can use a plant-based estradiol and a plant-based um, type of progestin called micro, micronized progesterone or norethindrone, or you could use an IUD actually. And those have actually been shown to have less of that increased risk of breast cancer. So overall, um, the benefits still outweigh the risks. Now, one other really important point is that these studies looked at the incidence of breast cancer, which is just the number of women diagnosed, but not deaths from breast cancer, which is a humongous distinction mm -hmm. because um, there's some user, there's some over-screening bias, meaning women who are on hormone replacement are often seeing their doctors regularly, are definitely getting their mammograms regularly. So we may be picking up more cases of those women because they're selecting to be proactive versus uh -huh. women that we are not even looking at who maybe are not going to the doctor, um, who are not getting their mammograms because, you know, so it's, it's a very complex answer. So we may be missing a lot of people and we may be overestimating the incidence of breast cancer in women who take HRT. But overall, we actually, many of us really believe that the mortality or the death rate from breast cancer in women who take hormone replacement 
who unfortunately and rarely do get that diagnosis actually less. So it's a really complicated story. And um, I hope that I said that in a way that made sense um, because it's really hard to explain. And this is why that time component, when doctors are explaining these to their patients in an office setting, this takes me about half an hour to 45 minutes, which a doctor may not have enough time to explain to each patient. And the effects of that or the original reporting about that study have lingered in people's minds. To oh, yeah. People, doctors as well, are very hesitant about HRT based on the initial findings of that study. Absolutely. So this idea persists among society, patients, and physicians alike that estrogen is dangerous and harmful. And nothing really stuck out in people's minds socially and medically than that result of that study. Mm-hmm. And so my mission is to really help educate both our young physicians who learn in medical school this message um, in most medical schools, and then to teach um, older physicians or physicians who've been practicing for a long time to change that like deeply rooted idea, mm-hmm. as well as to then educate the society and lay people and patients who are also terribly confused yeah. and scared, quite frankly, because of course, these are, you know, risks that I would never want anyone to get these diagnoses or to have any risks. But frankly, there is, I always kind of say this when I'm teaching to other doctors, there's probably more risks when you prescribe insulin, aspirin, or diabetes medications that are going to land people in the emergency room than there is when I prescribe, you know, estrogen or an estrogen progesterone combination. Um, and that's really true, but it's, it's so deeply rooted uh, that it's, it's just, it's, um, it's fascinating. And I don't know if you have any insight into this, but I find it so interesting that um, in the subsequent, when, when, when doctors and scientists re-looked at that data and interpreted it in the way you were saying that we actually should have interpreted it the first way, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that it was not widely reported. It has not been widely reported that, hey, the conclusions drawn from the study were actually inaccurate. You don't need to be scared. That has not been widely reported. Right. And exactly, exactly. You know, the media is really, in my opinion, much more interested in studies that are harmful to women or that scare women, Mm -hmm. but you don't have the same press release, you know, saying, oh, gee, we looked at this data 15 years later and we see that in the younger women uh, who took it closer to menopause, they actually, you know, they did well. You don't see that story, right? That's not on on BBC or CNN or wherever you get your news. Um, so that's why I, I, I will put it on my podcast, but, or on my, on my um, social media, but it's still really hard to reach women because they're so they're bombarded with so many messages. So, you know, you asked me again in the beginning, there's a lack of clear, concise and consistent messaging among physicians uh, to, to women. And this again, you know, hopefully it's kind of coming full circle here as we're starting to uncover that and see, and you see what I live with every day. Yeah. Now, so let's say a woman decides to go um, to seek treatment that she's having symptoms, she's uncomfortable, she would like to seek treatment. Um, 
what is your advice for preparing for um, that appointment and how, and do you suggest you get somebody who specifically specializes in menopause or is just a regular OBGYN a good option? So great question. I think that um, it, it is it is dependent upon uh, the uh, your doctor, whether it's your OBGYN or your internist's um, knowledge and experience in um, treating menopause with or without HRT. So I, I always kind of step back and say there's there's no, you know, you should be for or against or it's right or wrong. It's really more, um, you know, it's, it's something hormone replacement should be in someone's arsenal of treatment options. But if a physician is really uneducated or inexperienced, you, just like your story, you may be up against uh, something where you just feel completely dismissed. Um, so that makes it really, really tough. So I built my practice and my, my medical career is really niching down and I just consult on menopause, but that is just not available everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I encourage patients and, and women to um, listen, either listen to my podcast. I only say that not as a self-plug, but I think that they are really evidence-based and can provide people with a lot of knowledge going into their appointment. And if they come out feeling unsatisfied or feeling dismissed, they can try looking for a NAMS provider. So NAMS is the North American Menopause Society. It's the governing body or the home body for um, physicians who are um, interested and experienced in treating menopause. Although a caveat is that is that um, there's still no um, like uh, there's still no sort of over regulatory system. So um, what I kind of say is not all NAMS providers are created equal, but it's probably the best place to start. So you can go to the website, which is menopause.org, type in your zip code and see if there is someone in your area and start with them. They should ideally um, be knowledgeable and experienced in um, treating perimenopause and menopause so that if you felt your first visit with your own doctor that you know you know wasn't good you could you could start there mm-hmm. um, then I always say you know unfortunately there is um, barriers to this a lot of these a lot of these physicians I've been told don't take insurance so they have you know they're out of pocket which is terribly unfair um, or they're not in someone's area so that's also terribly unfair so again there's more sort of to the story. I always say, you know, you can travel just like patients went all the way to Cleveland to be treated. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you have to go to another city because you feel like your quality of life is so, um, so low that you need to travel, it's probably worth a trip. If you need to see an expert such as Cleveland or I'm in Boston, or there's, there's many doctors who do work in academic settings who take insurance. Um, but again, that's still costly. You still have to travel. Um, and then finally, you know, one of the things I've been working on, um, at nights and on weekends is I've been working on making my own course. So, um, one of the things I want to include in there 
or I've included is it's, it's a really great option. It's going to really go through, you know, how do you interpret your own labs? How do you, you know, decide if um, treatment is right for you? What are the real risks and benefits of hormone therapy? Almost like in a way so I could reproduce myself or replicate myself yeah. in, in, in various cities. Um, but I want to include a guide on how to talk to your doctor who may not be knowledgeable. In fact, it might be even, you know, a, a, an interesting idea to let physicians take this course or to develop a course for physicians, um, you know, that's kind of quick and to the point because I, I, I can educate so many physicians, but there's just, you know, thousands I can't reach. So those are kind of my- fantastic. When is, when will your course be, be available? Yeah, hopefully in January. Um, and on my website, which is heatherhirschmd.com, I now have a, um, you know, uh, button for my course, which is um, almost done. Um, I'm putting the finishing touches on it. And like, like you learning technology, which is something I did not learn in medical school, but um, <laughs> learning the audio and learning to uh, uh, stream these so that they look and, and work it for people. But that might be another option too, because um, the themes that we keep discussing is how there's a lack of clear and consistent um, messaging, how women are, you know, worried, confused, scared, and dismissed, and that there's just um, a lack of physicians who are trained and educated in this area who can help. Yeah. Um, am I remembering correctly that on the NAMS website that they have kind of um, guidelines about HRT and when it's appropriate and when it is not? I'm not sure if that was, if that was them or not. Yeah, I believe that there is. Um, the NAMS website is actually flooded with, with information. There's a lot of great information on that website. Um, in my own opinion, it's, it's a little, um, it's not so user-friendly mm. um, in the sense that you kind of have to dig a little bit, but um, there is a section for um, non-medical women who can read through that. Um, the NAMS, the North American Menopause Society 2017 uh, position statement on hormone therapy is in scientific lingo, but is, it is often something that I hand out to my patients um, in my office um, because you can sort of sit and read through it and it will, it will reiterate the same points that we believe, you know, as a society, um, we, we feel strongly that hormone therapy benefits um, outweigh the risks specifically in women who take it closer to menopause or in perimenopause. There's lots of data also for, you know, we've been focusing on natural menopause, but for women who may be in menopause in their 20s or 30s after radiation, after chemo, um, maybe they've had their ovaries taken out for um, terrible endometriosis or terrible cystic ovaries, they can be put into menopause so young and they definitely, without a question, should be on estrogen replacement because we know they have an increased risk of death from cardiovascular disease without estrogen when they are really young. Um, so breast cancer survivors, there's so many um, groups of women um, who experience menopause um, differently. And it's all really in that NAMS um, paper. And, it's, and there is a lot of information in the NAMS website. So it is a great resource to go to. Um, you just have to dig a little bit. 
Yeah, that's what I remember. I believe that's, that those are some of the documents I brought with me to my doctor's appointment um, that I was glad I had. <laughs> um, yeah, great. Good for you. That's amazing. Now, let me ask you one more question about treatment. Um, if you get on Amazon, you can order hormone replacement. Did you, you know, like these, what do they call them? Bioidentical creams and whatnot. What do you think of those? So great question. Um, and um, what we have is a, um, a whole niche that grew out of the fear from FDA approved hormone therapy because of the results of the, and the way the media presented the results of the women's health study in the early 2000s. So these um, compounded um, options are actually really unsafe. And there's a couple of reasons why. First, um, so compounded estrogen, progesterone, testosterone combinations that someone may get at a wellness clinic or um, from a compounding pharmacy, there is no clear way to know if you are getting a balanced estrogen and progesterone, and you need that to protect you from uterine cancer. So a compounded medicine is really unsafe. They're just, there's no way to monitor them, to regulate them, or to study them. And again, it is much safer to use FDA-approved HRT than it is to use compounded hormone replacement. We know that about, of, of all the women who take hormone replacement, about two-thirds take this compounded, um, unregulated type, and one-third take FDA-approved. And again, that goes back to the same point that doctors are increasing the health risks for women wow. by being dismissive and not being educated. The other problem is super therapeutic or massive amounts of testosterone, which can often be found in pellet injections. I doubt you can get that on Amazon. But pellet injections um, give super therapeutic levels of testosterone. So side effects from this is that women can have permanent hair loss, um, permanent deepening of their voice, permanent enlargement of the clitoris. Um, and these are all things I actually see. These happen. Wow. Um, now, on, Wait, and, where are women getting those? Yeah, um, you know, um, pellet injections are very popular in geographic locations. Um, the ones that I know of are um, Texas, um, actually Central Ohio, where I was before I, before I moved um, to Boston, um, and definitely in California and in, in sort of the southern states. Um, and it, women it, get them from their doctors? Yeah, they oh, do. Gosh either physicians or um, uh, maybe pharmacists or nurse practitioners or people who learn how to do this. Um, and, and physicians have had their licenses revoked because of this. Um, but there is this idea that they're safer, they're marketed as being safer than, um, than FDA-approved hormone therapy, which is really incorrect. So bioidentical is a slang term. It means that the, the um, main medication is estradiol, which actually comes in very um, various forms of FDA-approved. So I always say to my patients, I can get you bioidentical, really safe, regulated estradiol that you can get for a few dollars a month at you know, CVS or Walgreens. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's surprising that that's even legal. Like that you can just, yeah, I, it, it is a, it, I know it boggles I know. my mind. 
no, means well. And I'm a physician and I, it, it totally boggles my mind. I, I don't know how, how it is even legal. Wow. Well, I appreciate this discussion we've had today. I think that people will hear this and have a good place to start from, um, you know, because so many women are in a place of not knowing and of just a general sense of fear and anxiety because what they have heard does not sound positive, right? I know. Yeah. Scary. So it's like, well, there's nothing I can do, but this one thing I've heard I might be able to do might give me and so hearing this today will hopefully have them feel hopeful and know where they can move next for some help. So before we close, let's take just a quick turn in the topic. I always like to have the women who are on my program talk a little bit about what they do for fitness. So I would love to hear a little bit about your fitness routine. What are you doing these days? Yes, I love exercising. I was an avid CrossFitter for the last five years. I loved the um, combination of high intensity interval training with weight training and with cardio. And um, prior to that, I was a long distance runner and I didn't, I did incorporate some weights, um, but definitely not as much until I started going to CrossFit. I'm so sorry about my dog who I hope oh, isn't, it's okay. isn't too loud. Um, I, I love CrossFit so much. Um, now we moved to a big city where um, I, I was really limited in getting to the gym. And so as a busy mom and a professional, um, I had to, um, do what I always dreaded, which, and I'm actually very self-motivated because I love exercise, but I've had to move it to my basement. Um, so I had to move it to my basement and in doing so, um, I, I got a barbell and some weights and, uh, I actually also invested and I think it's an investment. I think all exercise is an investment in yourself, be it money, time, etc. I invested in a Peloton as a um, way to do some cardio besides for just running on a treadmill and staring at a cinder block. Um, I find the Peloton so fun. It is, I've never took a spinning class in my entire life. I mean, like maybe like years ago, um, but it's really an interactive. You, there's also a community. You can form friends, you can make friends, you can form groups online, you can high five each other. And then after I do that, I do some, I still incorporate some weight bearing exercise, keeps your bones healthy, keeps your metabolic rate up. And it's also just so great for women to weight train. So I play around with my barbell and my weights and probably don't do as heavy as I did, you know, in the gym with all the college kids around me motivating me. (laughs) Um, But I still keep up that weight training. um, And so I just absolutely love it. Well, I love how you shifted things based on your changing situation, right? So you loved CrossFit and then your life changed a bit and you made it work in your basement. So I love that. Yeah. Fantastic. So Dr. Hirsch, where can people find you? So I have um, my own website, which is heatherhirschmd.com. And I also have my own podcast, um, Health by Heather Hirsch, which you can find on iTunes, um, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, and it's, um, all women's health focused. Um, I'm on Instagram. I'm hormone health doc. I'm on Twitter. I'm Heather Hirsch MD and I work and I do consulting in Boston. Um, and I work at the Brigham and women's hospital. Um, and my office is located in Chestnut Hill. 
Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. We'll be looking for that course you have coming out too. Is your website the best place to find information on that? Yes. And of course, if you subscribe to my email list, um, uh, you'll get sort of first to know of when it's coming out and if you want to be an early adapter and give me some feedback on it. Okay. Thank you so much, Heather. Appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for being here and listening in to the Fitness Simplified podcast today. I hope you found it educational, motivational, inspirational, all the kinds of ational. <laughs> if you enjoyed it, if you found value in it, it would mean so much to me if you would go ahead and leave a rating and review on whatever platform you are listening to this on. It really does help to get this podcast to other people. Thanks so much.